You're listening to a Comics XF podcast. Matt Laswitz, and welcome to this week's episode of Bat Chat with Matt and Will, a Batman ranking podcast, where each week my co-host Will Nevin and I dig into three Batman stories, discuss them, and rank them on the big board, thus creating a giant list of Batman stories from best to worst. Will, how are you this evening? Hey, I'm pretty good, Matt. So uh, after the pub run tonight, we uh, we roasted s'mores, and uh, when I got home, I put on a pair of sweatpants that are decidedly not clean. So uh, I smell like campfire and crotch. Come at me, ladies and gentlemen. But my question for you this evening, and and I'm going to throw you a real curveball tonight because it's actually going to be Batman related. If you could make one character vanish from the history of Batman, they would disappear. They would just be memory hold for everyone but you. Who would it be? Well, that is an interesting question. So I'm going to buy myself some time here by working through this process out loud. It would have to be a character that has impacted the legacy of Batman in a negative way it can't be Mm. someone who just is a character i sort of don't like or is too recent because we can't be sure if some of the recent more obnoxious additions to the canon are really gonna matter so you're you're looking at this from the perspective of you got one shot you got to make it count yeah exactly okay but here's another question okay Are we dealing with time travel rules here? Is there a butterfly effect? Because for want of a better example, let's say I got rid of Clue Master. Spoiler is Clue Master's daughter. By getting rid of Clue Master, does that also remove spoiler? No, no, no. This is a surgical strike. Everything is going to slightly change, but this one character is going to be excised, vanished. Stephanie Brown is now the daughter of Blue Master. Okay, fair. Wow, I mean, you put me on the spot in a good way here, and that this is a really <laughs> challenging question. And and it's not necessarily like removing this iteration of this character. If you get rid of the character, all versions of the character go. Oh yeah, it's like a, it's like a melon baller. You're just scooping out the whole thing. So it's not like. I really dislike this interpretation of the Joker, but I want all the rest of the, the in- interpretations of the Joker to survive, just not this one. One Joker, three Jokers, Joker who cut his own face off, they're all gone. I mean, there's also the argument of you get rid of a character that is irritating, but who you feel in general by getting rid of them, it's not going to affect the grand oeuvre of Batman. A real psychopath would say somebody like Joker, right? Everybody else forgets that Joker exists, but you're like, yeah, I got rid of the world's best Batman villain. I know all of those stories. They're they're mine forever now. 
it's like that movie yesterday where everybody forgets the Beatles except that one guy. That one friggin' guy. For instance, is it on balance you get rid of the Joker? And yes, you're losing some of the best Batman stories, but you're also losing a ton of really, really bad Batman stories, too. Like three Jokers. Right. I assume you've considered this and you have your answer. Well, come on, Matt. You know me. You know what I'm going to say. There's a couple of options here. Could be any of the, the tiny in characters or Hush. Any of the above. Uh, hush, hush, is a, hush is not a bad answer here. Right. Because, I mean, also, removing Hush, the dominoes really don't fall that poorly. You don't remove that many stories. A- aside from the original Hush, there isn't a ton of impact on the canon overall. Oh, but Shush might be great, Matt. Yeah. <laughs> Did anything particular spawn this question as I continue to buy time trying to figure out who I could get rid of? No, I mean, you know, I'm just thinking about how much I hate Ghostmaker constantly, right? I, I don't have a moment's peace without thinking about how much I hate his costume and I hate his attitude and I hate how he was shoehorned into the uh, into the canon. I mean, I like that he likes dudes, but other than that, I mean, he really can't just go away forever. So that's obviously my pick there. I, I also hate the gimmick that, you know, he's, you know, the home improvement neighbor that we never see his face. That's it's exhausting. What I'm trying to figure out is what character do I remove from the whole League of Assassins world? that makes Raish and all the characters around him less awkwardly all over the place. Because it feels like since Tower of Babel, Raish and the League of Assassins have been so poorly written in general. And I feel like there's there's a load-bearing something there where if you remove it, it makes those characters work better and i'm having a hard time i'm just thinking of you know possibly members of the gcpd who didn't particularly work but those characters go away quickly your gotham politicians who kind of suck or your gcpd members who kind of suck they just stop being used and nobody notices anymore yeah we haven't seen mayor nakato in forever yeah he's appeared in like a panel you see him signing something with the orgon but his plot doesn't go anywhere god might it be hush i mean i'm literally trying to think outside of hush the original i'm just trying to think who else i just utterly hate because i think I don't dislike Heart of Hush as much as you do. I think there's some cool stuff that happens with House of Hush. So I'm going to cut some of this silence because you've really got me thinking here. This is this is a really interesting question. Like, or is there, I'm trying to think if there's one character from a particularly repellent... Oh, see, And then there's like one or two characters who I'm thinking of who there are a couple of really great stories featuring those characters. So I kind of, I don't want to get rid of them because I don't want to lose those couple stories. 
but so many of the other ones are bad. Black Mask. There's some really good stuff, especially like the Brubaker Catwoman and some of the original Black Mask stuff. But then you you got War Games and you've got all these things where he's just this utter misogynist torture freak. And he could be filled in by any other mobster, really. Yeah, he's he's got a neat visual. And his boy, his No Man's Land incarnation changes the character a lot. And then they sort of quietly shifted him back to his original vibe after No Man's Land. I will tell you, if you could remove an iteration of a character, I could name that iteration right now. Well, go for it. I would remove the Tom King rebirth era Holly Robinson. Ah, where she turned on Selena. Yeah. I love the Brubaker, Wolf, Pfeiffer, Holly Robinson, and the stuff that they build that character into. And then the version in Tom King's run is so different, diametrically different. It almost feels like another character. That would be something I would get rid of. And I don't know how you could, either you could introduce a new character who Selena was covering up for or something, but I wouldn't want to get rid of Holly whole cloth because I really like the original Holly Robinson. I may have to keep considering this over the, for a little bit. Cause there's, you know, I'm going to say black mask. I'm going to say, because I think, there are a few good stories, but in general, as you said, he could be easily replaced by Great White Shark or Penguin or any number of other mob characters. And the sort of rampant misogyny that they decided to make. And that was baked into the character. I mean, he was a guy who ran a cosmetics company whose model girlfriend got her face mangled by the makeup that his company made this new makeup and he made her wear like a porcelain mask and it was weird and it wasn't quite as explicit as how sickeningly misogynistic he is later but it was there to begin with but other than that that initial concept of a guy who's really after Bruce Wayne and not Batman and the Brubaker stories in Catwoman in the early Brubaker Catwoman there aren't a lot of really good black mask stories and I think you don't lose much by getting rid of that character all right I'm going to give you some warning for the next question for next week so you have homework whose run on the main bat title are we getting rid of Think about it. Okay. Yep. And again, I will say you can get rid of a run that's just plain bad, or you could get rid of a run that you don't like what it did to the character. And that's, there are runs where it's like, I don't particularly like the content, but the quality of the comics are undeniably better. And then there's just like, that's just bad. But that's just dumb. That that's some that is some interesting thought experiment there, but yeah. So uh, tonight we we've still got some some thinkers, some stuff to discuss in here. Not necessarily the first story, but we'll, we'll get some of the later ones where there's some I, stuff to discuss. I think I think it's going to be a hard night tonight. 
Really? I do. Because? Because we got two stories that are pretty good. Yeah, I really like two and three. And the third one is is Trifle Town. Deep Trifle Town. But it's got some spanking in it. Woo! <laughs> Does it ever? This week, Patreon supporter Sam Hopper requested stories featuring Batwoman. So we'll be spending some time with both Kathy and Kate Kane. The first story is Batwoman's publicity agent. This is Batman Volume 1, number 133. The writer is Bill Finger, with art by Sheldon Maldoff. No colorist is credited. Letters by Stan Starkman, and no editor is credited. The cover date is August of 1960. Batmite returns, only this time he wants to help Batwoman. Deciding to be her partner, Batmite is trying to be on his best behavior. But how long can that last? It still blows my mind how long Bob Kane was at this. This is 1960. Bob Kane or Bill Finger? Uh, well, I guess both. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but that's a that's a long time. Long time. In Kane's case, a lot of these were ghosts. For a lot of years, he was just slapping his name on other artists' work. And that was nice the guy. deal. But Bill Finger, as far as we know, he was writing these stories, as was Jerry Siegel, the co-creator of Superman. Like, those guys worked for 30-ish years plus Ooh. because there was no safety net. For Golden Age comics artists, there's still no safety net for modern age comic artists either. There's the Hero Initiative. That's yeah, about it. Che- yeah, yeah, community charity. Nice so, going, studios. Yeah. So going into this issue, for those out there, we are only doing the Batmite story. Issue 133 does also, in one of its other stories, feature the first appearance of Kite Man. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. Uh, and we will be doing that story in a Kite Man episode at some point around the time that the Kite Man animated series debuts, because that's a real thing that's happening. A, r- a real thing that is really happening? Yeah. Harley Quinn spinoff. Kite Man. Hell yeah. The world is full of wonders. Yep. Somehow, you know, the Joker, the Penguin, Doctor Doom, Thanos, all of these major supervillains have never gotten their own animated series. But Kite Man, Kite Man, hell yeah. But the story we're covering, this is the height of the late golden, early silver age Bat family. Or between this issue and the next issue, which is the first appearance of Betty Kane, the Bat hyphen girl. We're at that point where, you know, we've got, Batman, Robin, Batwoman, Bathound, Batmite. And one of them shows up in this story. I probably could have picked a more Batwoman-centric story for this episode, but I remember reading this one way back when and getting a kick out of it, so I went with it. And it is trifly. It does have Batmite riding Bathound. Oh, yeah. That is the joy of a trifle. Trifles can be just so freaking fun. I like little people on big dogs. Yeah. I just, I just do. That's just fun. 
and it's it's just a weird little story where Batmite just out of nowhere is like, you know, Batman, you know, you you got Robin to help you, and nobody's here to help Batwoman, so let me be her sidekick. And he seems to really try to go on the straight and narrow here, but then his instincts always just kick in, and it's like, hey, let me be mischievous because that's what I do. And the only and you know, with Mister Mixia Spitlick, you got to have him say his name backwards. That might get rid of him. All you got to do is have a hankering for a spankering. <laughs> you little imp, I'm going to spank you. I better go home. And this is before Batmite was necessarily a resident of the fifth dimension. Like they hadn't connected him and Mixia Spitlick at this point. He was just from another dimension. This is just sort of a series of set piece capers with batman and robin fighting criminals batmite and batwoman fighting criminals but it is very of its time i was shocked when i saw that this was a sheldon maldoff drawn comic and not a dick sprang drawn comic because you've got uh, the giant camera. The giant camera. And then at the end, when Batmite uses his powers to shrink Batman, Batwoman, and Robin and these crooks down to tiny size, suddenly they're in a hardware store or warehouse, and they're surrounded by what are, to them, giant tools. It felt like a Dick Sprang sort of thing. But, I mean, I even had my notes. I had written, read it before I checked the credits. I was like... There's all these other, oh, this has got to be a Dick Sprang. Like, huh, it's not. Joke's on you, fuckboy. Thanks. I've never really called the fuckboy before. Oh, <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I like how, you know, the, the turning point in this story from when Batmite stops going straight at the job is when Batwoman kisses him. Yes. Like, uh-oh, uh-oh, I'm smitten now. So now... Better start screwing around. Yeah, and... I mean, even initially, he's not going full on Batmite either. He's at least sort of trying to keep up with what he said. He's he's using his powers a little, but he's not completely screwing around with everybody. He's just using them to help Batwoman. But then it's... Here we go. Now that they've, uh, well, this is going to be boring and I need to to better let Batwoman show how great she is. So I'm going to shrink everybody down so it looks cool. That's the ticket. Again, Batmite, that's not how any of this works. And in the end, the big hero of the story is neither Batman nor Batwoman. It is, in fact, Bathound who, at this point, gigantic dog who intimidates a runaway gang of criminals shrunk down to the size of G.I. Joe's. Didn't even try to eat him. Oh, he's a very well-behaved dog. He understands the one rule. <laughs> They're like chipmunk size. That doesn't count. It is also the story where Batmite reveals himself to the public. Which I do like Batman's reasoning that in the past, when Batmite did random crazy stuff, Batman would just find some way to cover it up. Because who would believe in this little weirdo? But 
now it's like, well, I guess I can admit that there's this little weirdo because he's revealed himself to the camera. He's not that old a character at this point. I'm always shocked at how late into this period Batmite was introduced. I would have thought he was a character from the early to mid 50s. He was, in fact, created in 1959. Hmm. So the Silver Age has really sort of already kicked off. And Batman was sort of behind the times. I mean, 56 is the first appearance of Barry Allen, which is usually the the comic that is considered the beginning of the Silver Age. There's arguments that you could say Fantastic Four, number one in 61, but mostly it's the first appearance of Barry Allen in 56. And so Batmite is technically a Silver Age character, not a Golden Age character, which is weird. It's a little strange that Batmite never makes Batman 66. So it does feel very much in line with the ethos of that show. But he would have it would have had to be sort of expensive. And they ne- there was never magic in 66. Are you talking the TV show or the comic? Excuse me. Uh, TV show. Yeah, I, I don't think the TV show never used magic. They tried to stick to science. So that's the only thing I could think of. That would explain why there was no Batmite. Because otherwise, yes, he would completely fit the the kooky aesthetic of 66. It would have been fun to watch Adam West doing his best against Batmite. I would be leery to know who they would have cast as Batmite. There isn't a ton to this story. And I, I again, I kind of wish we had done, I had picked something that was a little bit more substantive for Kate Kane or Kathy Kane, excuse me. Kate Kane is a different character. Uh, uh, well, Matt, if you want, uh, we could take a break. Uh, you could pick another story. We could read it and then we could scrap all this. Nah, we're here for a reason. We we're going to have to read it eventually anyway. Yeah. So, you know, it's funny. I had initially thought that this was in that greatest Batman stories ever told trade that I had, but it wasn't. This was, in fact, reprinted in Batman Annual number seven, back when annuals were these sort of big, chunky reprints. And I I had gotten that annual at like a thrift store or something because like the cover was hanging off of it. Or there was a chunk missing. So it was there for like 50 cents. And it reprinted all of these stories of the the Silver Age Bat family. Like it has the first appearance of Batmite. It has the first appearance of Bathound and Batgirl. And it had stories of Alfred. And it had this story. And it had a story of a possible future where I think Dick grows up to be Batman 2 and Bruce Wayne Jr. is Robin 2. Well, of course. Yeah, wild Silver Age concept. We talk about how there were no trades and obviously there weren't, but you would get reprints 
within series and throughout the Silver Age. And part of that was to cover deadlines. And part of it was that there wasn't easy access to older stories. So you could get away with reprints because your audience was cycling more frequently. There weren't as many old heads who had read comics for 30 plus years. It was a kid's thing. Granted, I'm not saying there weren't old heads who'd been reading comics for 30 years. There are either fewer of them or they just weren't willing to admit it. I will say that Batwoman in this story is both competent and not Batman crazy. Very independent. Yes, which a lot of the female characters weren't in this era. And even at times Batwoman wasn't. But here she's, you know, doing it for herself. And she was able to pull all sorts of things off without Batmite's help. It's just Batmite sort of comes along and attaches himself to her. I did like the bit where Batmite made the tires fall off of Batwoman's motorcycle so the rims could coast along the top of a gondola cable to catch up with guys who were flying on what was kind of like a ski lift not flying but you know traveling on one of those ski lift gondola type deals it was a, a neat visual this issue looked good i mean it's a, it's a nice maldoff is one of those really solid golden silver age artists and the book looks nice for that that it does. It seems like there's been some selective retouching here. Like the lettering all looks sharp, but the rest of the art is still, uh, I would say, of its time. Um, not uh, digitally enhanced or anything like that. So I, I think it's a good balance between looking almost fake in as some of these uh, retouched uh, works that we've seen over the over the years. I don't think we have much more on this one, and there's a lot to discuss on the other two. Doy boy, is there ever. Uh, all right. Oh, uh, that means it's time for Batman 133, Batwoman's publicity agent on the big board. We currently have 333 stories on the big board. Ooh. Number one is... Batman Year One, the post-crisis origin of Batman. Number 50 is A Savage Innocence, the story where the Joker gets the power of the Spectre. Coming into family-friendly 69, it's Wayne Family Adventures Volume 1. Number 100 is A Lonely Place of Living, the Tim Drake-centric arc from the Tinyan Detective run. 150 is Fool's Errand, a Batman Joker one-off from Detective Comics 726. 200 is Legends of the Dark Might, the Batmite Alan Grant's story. Number 250 is You Can't Hide from a Dead Man, the Bob Haney, Neil Adams, Brave and the Bold, Batman Dead Man team-up. 300 is Deadless and Icarus, the origin or story of how Jason Todd came back from the dead. And all the way down at the bottom at 333, it's Curse of the White Knight. Terrible. 
So I had meant to do something this weekend on top of something else I did. And I'll I'll try to get it done for next week or for within the next couple of weeks. Maybe in time for Christmas. There'd be something fun to talk about at Christmas. I went to my copy of the big board and I added creator credits with the exception of, you know, anthologies or big crossovers and things. So I'm kind of curious to look through and figure out who are the creators that we've gotten the most stories from at this point. Mm -hmm. I think it's either Denny O'Neill or Alan Grant, but I'm curious to see. But for this one, I mean, there's quite a bit of Bill Finger on here as well, but I don't think we're necessarily looking at that. I think we're just sort of trying to figure out where is Trifle Town at this point? Trifle Town is not 269 The Grim Knight. It's above that. Yes. Yes, definitely. That is the beginning of the it has problematic stuff in it or is just a little bit lacking in some respects. There's some some stuff that might have belonged a little bit higher to get it out of that range, like Batmite's New York Adventure or Search for Santa Claus, but they're also fairly minor works. But you start getting more substantive around 200. Because with Legends of the Dark Might, Injustice, Gods Among Us, Volume 2, Blades, that's not trifles. That that's above Trifle Town. Actually, it's probably a little below that as well. We're so we're somewhere in the the mid to upper two hundreds, I'd say. Probably somewhere in the two forties, two fifties. Actually, I might even have a, a really tight range for this one. Okay, what you got? I, I do not think it is better than two fifty three, the original Hugo Strange and the Monster Men story. So that means it falls between 253 and 269. So that really narrows the field. I'm actually thinking even maybe a little bit lower because I think another story from a, a little bit later that also features Batwoman and Bat-Girl, uh, the great Joker-Clayface feud at 261 is better. There's a lot. that Actually, there's quite a few of stories from this period in there. Because then at 263 is Zurinar. The Batman, the Superman of Planet X. Is this better than Zurinar? So we would not read Zurinar if not for what Grant Morrison did with it. True. That that is a story that a major creator sort of found and repurposed versus making it not a forgotten story. And the story itself is just just some silly sci-fi nonsense. Yeah. I think this has more substance to it, even though it's got more spanking in it. It does. All right. So that actually puts us between 261 and 263. So is this better than Bouncing Baby Boy, the Batman Plastic Man story at 262? Uh, so much Plastic Man. I would say so, but I defer to your judgment. Um, I'm I'm fine with that. I'm fine with this as the new 262. Now is where it gets hard. Our second story of the night is Elegy. This is Detective Comics, Volume 1, numbers 854 to 857. The writer is Greg Rucka, with art by J.H. Williams III, colors by Dave Stewart, letters by Todd Klein, and edited by Harvey Richards and Michael Siglane. 
The cover dates are August to November of 2009. The new High Madam of the Religion of Crime is arriving in Gotham, and after their attempts to kill her during the events of 52, Batwoman is looking for a little payback. But this new leader has a connection to Kate Kane that she is not ready for, and a plan that could mean the end of Gotham. So there, there's all sorts of, of context and stuff to talk about around this story. This is the beginning of what seemed to be an attempt to give Batwoman an ongoing regular feature in Detective, which only lasted for about a year, maybe even a little less. Batwoman, the Kate Kane iteration of Batwoman, was introduced during 52. When she was first introduced, at least, there was buzz, and we're going to make this a big character. But then the suits at Warner Discovery or Warner AOL Time Warner or whatever the hell it was at that point started getting a little nervous about a queer Bat character. So the ongoing was sort of forgotten and in the period of time in between the end of 52 and this book which is uh, somewhere between a year and a half and two years kate kane appeared a total of 13 times couple issues of countdown part of the renee montoya crime bible miniseries question and uh during final crisis and a, of tie-in miniseries to Final Crisis that was a Montoya question, Chris Allen Spectre miniseries that dealt with the religion of crime again. So she had not appeared a ton before this. And this story is the one that really starts fleshing out who she is and starts giving you her backstory or details of it that introduces her dad, that introduces the stuff about her sister and her mother, all of that comes in here and it is a stunning looking comic oh stunning was the word that was just about to come out of my mouth i love books that have an artistic vision and so much of monthly comics just seems to be like all right let's get this out the door let's let's do what we got to do to make sure this book ships but this thing has purpose it has a goal it knows what it wants to be visually every page feels like it's got this life and this energy and just this eye for detail and style and just ah, it's so beautiful two particular things that i want to call out when it comes to the art one jh williams is the master of the two-page spread yes his work when he does a two-page spread and he does them a lot they flow gorgeously. And whether it's one big sort of continuous scene or a bunch of little panels, it all flows so well. You never lose what's going on in that two-page spread. Also, I'm going to go back to a particular story that we loved, but that had one note that bugged you. Do you remember Cold Days and Bruce Wayne's salmon shirt, was it? Boo! 
a lot of artists in comics don't pay attention to fashion. They just sort of, okay, these characters are in clothes and there we go. If it's not costumes, it doesn't particularly matter. Williams has such an eye for what these characters are dressing in. Kate specifically. There's a scene where she goes to meet someone she's dating for breakfast. And the outfit she's in is so distinct. And when she goes to a charity ball and shows up in a tux, the way the tux is tailored. And then when she meets Maggie Sawyer, who's also in a tux, Maggie's tux is tailored differently. It's not a generic tuxedo. And the outfit that Alice, the high madam of the religion of crime, is in is so distinct. And the the way Alice is drawn in general is sort of ethereal. But it's a step beyond to really pay attention to clothing and texture. The the gala scene with Kate and Maggie and just the the movement as they dance and as you've already pointed out the the tuxedos it's 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 so 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 good i would be more surprised if jacob kane's uniform was inaccurate in the placement of his stripes and things than if it was because i'm sure williams made sure to get that right that he is wearing the uniform with all of the appropriate bits of an army colonel. The monsters in this book, these beast people, look so cool. And we will definitely talk about the story, but so much of this book, just the art is breathtaking. And one of the things that I absolutely loved... Todd Klein, we've talked about him before. He's sort of the the greatest of all time when it comes to lettering. Uh, is that the guy who won like 15 Eisners in yeah. a row? Yep. I love that he gives Alice this distinct lettering throughout because all she does is speak in Lewis Carroll quotes until the very end. Her last line breaks that and she says something that is just her speaking and only in that word balloon is it normal word balloon it's such a great little visual indicator that she is breaking that persona and she's being beth not alice for that one line and it's one of those lines that always stuck with me and they used it in the batwoman tv series too the moment where she reveals herself there is the same line. You have our father's eyes. It's such a great moment. So if I'm following this character correctly, there's this tragedy. Her mother and presumably her sister are killed, but it turns out her sister is not actually killed. Yes. Uh, yes. Abducted? Yeah. The second arc of this run gives that the details of what happened. But they were serving 
they were abducted by some terrorist cell for ransom or political purposes. Gabrielle, the mother, was killed. Beth was apparently killed as Jacob's men, you know, a covert team arrived to break in and rescue them. But Beth was instead taken by the religion of crime and raised within the religion of crime. Which is a wild concept. I love the religion of crime. It's it's so insane. And it's one of those things uh, Rucka cre- created for 52. And he continued to use, there was, again, a, a crime Bible miniseries that was a Rene Montoya story. And Final Crisis Revelations is another religion of crime story as Montoya, Chris Allen, who's the specter at that point, and Kate have to face down the religion of crime and their founder and Lord, who is the biblical Cain. But funny. Does sto- seem to be quite crazy. But funny story, of course, because this is the DC universe, the, the biblical Cain, the first murderer. Yeah, that's Vandal Savage. Yeah. Which makes perfect sense. I mean, killer caveman kind of sort of makes sense that the Bible based Cain off of Vandal Savage. But that's where he got all that money, all of those, all of those residuals from the Bible. Yeah, exactly. Just shows up at the Vatican every six months or so and is like, fork it over. It's nice that you need to know very little of that here. That it's like, okay, there's a religion of crime. Both of these stories that we're we're getting into now, that in the chunky bits of the episode. So visually. This has more going for it, even though the second story is very strong in and of its own right. But narratively, right? Narratively, the second story is stronger, at least to my read, because I don't have all of this religion or crime stuff. Yeah, I mean, it is a more straightforward story. I don't think you're completely lost in this without that backstory, but it definitely helps. It's very difficult for me to divorce myself from knowing all of that and being like, okay, how much of this would I not have gotten without having read 52 and Revelation and even going back as far as some stuff from Rucka's Detective that feeds into this. I will say reading these two stories tonight, these latter two made me think, Boy, I kind of want to just start reading these runs again. You know, just yeah. go back and start Rucka from Detective all the way through this and read the entirety of that second, the, the other run we'll be discussing again, just to see how it all fits together now. I like a lot of how Rucka plays this story out. He is very clearly building a long-form narrative here. And this is the first chapter of that narrative. A narrative that sadly never got anywhere near the resolution that was intended. Again, it's this arc, another arc, and then a Batwoman Zero. And then when the New 52 started, Rucka left... And Hayden Blackman, who worked with Williams on the Batwoman ongoing in the New 52, 
it's not like he had Rucka's plans or if he did, he didn't go with them. And Rucka himself said there's too much water has gone under the bridge at this point for him to be able to go back to telling the story that he planned that Kate is a different character now than the one he was working on. But here you get Kate, you meet Jacob, her father, you meet Catherine Hamilton, her stepmother, you see Betty Kane, because there's a lot of Elizabeths in the Canes, but Beth, who's the sister, and Betty, or Bet, who's her cousin, who was the bat-girl of the Silver Age, and who'd been reintroduced years before as Flamebird, another superheroine, who pops up here briefly. You see Kate's resentment towards Catherine, and Catherine not knowing how to deal with Kate. You see the stuff with Kyle Abbott, the the Wolfman, and you see Alice. And all of that is so clearly a plan for all of this future stuff. But you still get an incredible set piece at the end. And you learn who all of these characters are. And you see that Kate is not necessarily a bat in the traditional sense. I mean, she breaks one of the rules. Even if she's not using a gun that fires you know, rounds, she's firing a trank gun or a pepper spray gun, but it's a gun. And that would not have worked with Bruce. Of course, we're at the point where the, the Batman we see in this story is Dick Bat. Bruce is currently dead, quote unquote. Did not know that. Yeah, this was what was running in Detective when Batman and Robin started. This is contemporaneous to the second act of the Morrison run. So you've got Bruce dead at this point because they had Dick in Batman and Robin and Batman and they gave Detective over to Batwoman. I still... I'm just struck by the the coloring in this book. What I was talking about earlier with a vision and a purpose. Every time red is used here, it's used to draw your eye to something. Uh, if it's not to draw your eye to Kate, it's to draw your eye to blood or to action on the page or or something else that's going on of importance to you, the reader. There are so few comics that are able to use coloring so skillfully. And this doesn't require a whole lot of other tricks, right? The The panels are great. Uh, the layouts are great. But it's ambitious, but it's not trying to reinvent comics. You know, it's not, it's not trying to reinvent lettering with, you know, 50 different ways to show emphasis. Like, this is a simple vision executed so well well we're talking about todd klein is that that letterer who has won all those eisners yet dave stewart has 10 coloring eisners he's the guy who works with mike mignola on everything so unsurprisingly he knows how to use reds yeah yeah shock was also the the colorist who worked with darwin cook on new frontier so Again, pretty unsurprising that this guy is 
the greatest of all time. This book is a dream team. When you got Rucka and Williams and Stewart and Klein, I can think of very few comics that have that kind of pedigree behind them. And yes, I'm sure we weren't officially reading uh, this, but we got question backups that are also spectacular. Oh, yeah. We will cover Char- those question backups at some point. Character design, a, a little bit dated, but everything else, so good. The action pieces. God, the fight in the cathedral and the fight on the plane. It's so cool. And I mean, again, Williams draws the hell out of them. But I love all of this. And I love the relationship that he is building between Kate and Jacob. And we know that it's not going to end well, but it's great. And it's interesting to me. And we'll see this, especially when we talk about the next story. Rucka is a diehard liberal. He is not in the least bit a conservative. But he very much strikes me as a love the warrior, not the war kind of guy. He very much has a respect for the army. You see that in his other work as well, in uh, the Atticus Kodiak novels, in Queen and Country, we got spies, but still there's a an idea that to serve is the highest honor. He's not in love with the policies, as we learn with Kate being drummed out of the military because of don't ask, don't tell. But here, it's very clear that Jacob is a character to be respected. Our writer in the next story clearly has a little more issue with the way the military does things or the way the government does things and is willing to put that on blast through their work. I do like that Kate does call out Alice by saying, you know, we already have a Lewis Carroll themed maniac in this city. They have multiple, let's be fair, but still. Damn you, Lewis Carroll. The fundraiser scene is just so beautiful. I love the, the moment in there where Kate sees a, a brunette talking to Jim Gordon and goes up to her and assuming it's Montoya and it's not. It just it shows so much about Kate and how she's grasping at things and that she's still not entirely well. Which is, I mean, she is that prototypical Rucka character. Mm-hmm. Her Montoya. Tara Chase, Dex Parios, they all fit very much in an archetype. And do you list the uh, protagonist of Whiteout? Oh, uh, Carrie Stetko. Yeah. Carrie Stetko. She's the other one. There's, I mean, there's a character, and again, those Atticus Kodiak novels, there's a a couple of those characters, those prototypical Rucka female characters in the Atticus Kodiak books. And I'm trying to... Bridget Logan, uh, Atticus's on-again, off-again romantic partner for the first few books. They're they're all over his work. I think that pretty much covers it. If you have anything. Uh, I got nothing else. So that means it's time for Detective Comics 854, 857. Elegy on the big board. 
so how high are we thinking on this one? I think it's top 50. Yeah, I don't know if it's top 25, though. Yeah. The hard ceiling for me is 24 Half a Life, another Rucka that Michael Lark, he and Williams are in like my pantheon of five favorite comic artists of all time. But there's more to Half a Life than there is to Elegy as a story. To get in the top, we'll say 40, right? We need to have just a great book that is visually sound, if not stunning. It's got a point in the writing. It's got a story that it wants to tell and that it really evokes, if not something central to Batman, it evokes some serious emotion. And I think that's maybe where this story doesn't quite hit the heights of something like Half a Life, right? It's it's busy putting all of the pieces on the table, laying out the groundwork for the, the tough story that's going to come, but it doesn't quite get to those emotional heights that we see. But it certainly deserves, I'd say, even top 40. I'm really looking forward to going back and reading Go, which is the second arc of this run, to see how this all lines up with that. Because that's that's basically the history of Kate Kane and how she got to be Batwoman. And then the, the last two issues of this run after that are just a, a three. Is the last arc a three issue? Yeah, it's a three issue that still great and still excellent art, but it's not Williams anymore. The last three issues are jock. So still great, still excellent art, but not Williams. I'm thinking if it cracks the top 40, I think it just cracks the top 40. I'm going to give you a spot. Okay. Uh, I'm going to say new 38. I love Slay Rod. I love that Tim Drake Joker story. But this is just so beautiful, but it does not have the emotional resonance of Father's Day at 37. All right. That works for me. Okay. Our final story of the night is Rise of the Batman. This is Detective Comics Volume 3, numbers 934 to 940. The writer is James Tiny in the fourth, pencils by Eddie Barrows, Alvaro Martinez Bueno and Al Barrionuevo, inks by Eber Ferreira, Raul Fernandez, and Barrionuevo, colors by Adriano Lucas and Brad Anderson, letters by Marilyn Patrizio, and edited by Dave Wilgus, Chris Conroy, and Mark Doyle. The cover dates are August to November of 2016. A mysterious faction is hunting the vigilantes of Gotham City. Batman recruits Batwoman to help him train the younger generation to fight this new foe, one with a connection to the Bat family they will not expect. This is the first arc of Tinian's run on Detective and the beginning of the Rebirth-era Detective Comics. This is running parallel to Tom King on Batman. This is still at a point where continuity is super wonky. There is 
so much going on here that is referencing the new 52 stuff while also hinting that there's other things going on. Tim is back to acting like old school pre-New 52 Tim, but has some of that New 52 Tim origin stuff going on, or at least background, as with Stephanie, as with Cass. They all have some weird stuff going on with what's going on around them. But Tinian is slowly trying to push that stuff aside to get these characters back to being who they were before the mess. I really, really like this story. Yeah, it's a good, good story. I'm I'm not real sold on it being seven parts, but the essence of it, and, and we've talked about this ad nauseum, detective is always better when it has a mission statement, when it has a goal, when it's not just, oh, it's just another bat book. This is clearly a planned ensemble book and each member of the team gets a little bit of a shine. And I love the use of Clayface here. I love the attempt to redeem Clayface. There are a lot of times where I don't feel a bat villain. When they try to redeem a lot of villains, it doesn't necessarily work. But here they they give him some pathos. It makes sense. And I mean, Tynion is playing with this iteration of Clayface. And it is one of the benefits of the wonkiness of the continuity at this point in that you can alter it somewhat and get a streamlined Clayface out of this in a way that works. And boy, as we continue with this run, the stuff he does with Clayface is fascinating and we just get a little bit of it here but there are just touches of it with him wanting to go out to audition Mm -hmm. and when they're trying to save people and he can't do it you know impersonating batman so he has to act like a monster and the fact that it clearly hurts that people run from him like that it's such a nice touch we will, are going to spend the lion's share of this talking about the two characters who are really the center of this, which are Kate and Tim. But I wanted to make sure we got the, the Clayface stuff talked about, too, because it's a great touch. It really is. And it's it's an interesting idea. And I think we mentioned this when we were talking about Wayne Family Adventures. And I've, I think I've mentioned it in the column at one point or another. But this is where Tinian really starts playing with the idea of Cassandra being fascinated by ballet. And again, I just think that's such a great wrinkle to add to that character. Just the, the view of ballet and or almost as a martial art is phenomenal. Mm-hmm. But this story is really a story about Kate Kane and Tim Drake. They are the central characters here. Bruce is secondary in this story. He's off the board for a a chunk of it. And especially as our villains are very much a Kate Kane and Tim Drake villains. In that, again, spoiling, I guess, a seven-year-old comic, but not 
really, because it's revealed pretty early on. The main force behind this is Jacob Kane. This is really seven years old. Yeah. Oh my God. 2016. Rebirth was seven years ago. Mm-hmm. The new 52 is over a decade old. Man, Rebirth feels like yesterday. I know. But the fact that there have been like four initiatives in seven years doesn't help. DCU. Oh, yeah. I remember that one. So much of this is about Kate. It's about Kate and her relationship with her father. It's about her trying to figure out who she is. And there's a lot of talk of that. Is she a leader or is she a follower? That's the central theme of her arc in this story, that she doesn't know what she is. Bruce clearly thinks she is his equal here. And the one scene she has with Montoya makes it very clear. Montoya, who knows her very well, says, you do your best when you follow your own instincts. You're a leader. While Jacob believes she's she's a follower, that she needs someone to tell her what to do. And that's going to be him. Right. And all of this is this internal struggle that she has to make a decision about by the end of the arc. But it is her arc in this entire series of stories throughout this entire detective run is her going back and forth with her relationship with her father. It's her coming to terms with that. It's her and the colony throughout. That is the central running theme throughout this this whole arc. The colony does not go away after this, obviously. So much of what this run is about is laid out here. And the question of, is Kate sort of destined to be the leader of the colony is, again, played out throughout the entire run. And she is so well handle here she's hard but she's not unfeeling Mm -hmm. and that's the difference between her and bruce they're both taskmasters in their own way but kate never hides her emotions while bruce tamps them down and comes off as cold kate kane is never cold the final confrontation between her and her father is so good. And there's some great, great flashbacks throughout this of her and Jacob. And I love the scene at the funeral for the Waynes. Oh, oh, I was going to mention that. You know, we see so often, uh, of course, the pearls, the actual murder scene, but we don't get too many scenes at the funeral. And what we had in this was so well done. Just Kate saying to her cousin, can I just sit with you for a while? Uh, Alfred says that people should give you your space. You should be allowed to have some space, but I'm just going to sit with you. Meanwhile, Jacob playing off the well-established acrimony between the Canes and the Waynes, not even really caring that Bruce is within earshot. And I had to go back and look because I cannot remember, there are apparently five Kane siblings. And really only three of them have any personality. Because Jacob, Martha, 
Philip from Zero Year. Then there is an unnamed brother who's Beth's father. And Nathaniel or Nathan, who was Kathy Kane's husband. That's why she's a Kane. She's a Kane by marriage, not a Kane by blood, mm. which makes the whole romance between her and Bruce not creepy because she was married to a distant uncle who passed away and she met Bruce unrelated to that. Matt, they're aristocracy. They can do what they want. <laughs> I mean, it's still a little creepy, don't get me wrong, but it's not as creepy as, you know, them actually being related. They had to really work around that one when Morrison decided that they wanted to use Kathy Kane again after years of that character lying fallow. Trying to think, I mean, I'm sure there'll be other things with Kate that will come up as we, we talk about some of the rest of this. And her relationship with Bruce here is so good that she's not taking his crap, that she is willing to stand up and challenge him, but still respects him because he inspired her to be Batwoman. He is still Batman. She respects that, but we're partners. I'm not your sidekick. Yeah, I'm not going to take your shit. And in the end, when she asks him, you knew or says, you knew it was my father all along. Like I suspected how long, how often are your suspicions correct? 85% of the time, 90. I understand why you didn't tell me, but never lie to me again. Mm -hmm. It's very good scene. It's a great scene. And it really, I wish we have, we had had over the course of the existence of these two characters, more times where they were interacting as peers and interacting in stories where they not just pure, but non-adversarial like actual team-ups because so often they're either in a larger ensemble in this book or they're in a somewhat adversarial position during the second batwoman ongoing where the only time bruce really interacts with her is when he's like yeah we need to take your sister in she's a criminal we can't and i would love to see the two of them team up again Next week, as we're recording, Kate is coming back in the new Outsiders book. So we can hope that she's returning from having kind of disappeared for quite a while. Off on Batwoman adventures. Yeah. I mean, hey, I'm happy that she's having Batwoman adventures. I just would like to, to see those Batwoman adventures. But now on to the other of the Bat family who is central to this particular story and that is tim drake oh uh do you like tim drake i you know i have a a passing affection for tim drake oh okay interesting i did not know god this is such a good tim drake story Mm -hmm. oh my god this is such a good tim drake story we started seeing hints of writers i think specifically tiny and sort of trying to restore Tim to who he was in Batman Eternal and Batman and Robin Eternal. But here, he's writing Tim like Tim should be written. But again, there's still some of this weird stuff from the New 52. Because there's the line early on when he said, Bruce talking to me, you've always distanced yourself. The, the Red Robin thing. This is still playing with that New 52, he was never Robin bit. Which, thank God, goes away as... 
the histories and continuity starts to write itself again by A Lonely Place of Living, which is the one other arc from this run we've covered here. But that's the point where Tim starts remembering his no classic origin. It's not all that god-awful New 52 origin anymore. But this story for Tim is about Tim trying to decide what he wants to be. It's similar to Kate. Kate has these two warring things, whether she's a leader or a follower. Tim is warring with the question of whether he could do more for the world, not as a superhero. And it's so rare that we see a superhero asking that question. When superheroes leave being superheroes, it's usually because of some tragedy or some failure. Here, Tim's struggle is going to college, learning more about science and looking at it that way can i make the world a better place in a different way and that's such an interesting take on the character not just going to college though right this is an opportunity a, a genius grant as it were and he struggles with in this arc with am i going to do this how am i going to tell batman what am i going to do and, you know, he eventually decides that, yeah, as soon as this one last mission is wrapped up, uh, I'm off to college. And, and of course, that's not how it works out. Oh, Tim, you should be more genre savvy. Never say one last mission. No, uh, but we get that beautiful scene between Stephanie and Bruce where, oh. you know, she just gives him that letter and he reads it and he his heart breaks and they embrace, and Tinian did a lot right here. Some moments are a bit overwritten, a little too talky, but that scene that says so very little is so perfect. And do not get me wrong, I am thrilled that Tim was not actually dead, but what a final showdown moment for him fighting a drone army and just looking at it watching it coming the first time is like it's just math it's just math and then he takes he takes out the entire first wave of drones and he's good and then he sees the next wave coming and just that beautiful tell everyone tell them i'm sorry tell them all what they mean to me dick and jason and damien and alfred and then playing off the, the thing that he, Bruce was saying earlier from this iteration of the, the last bit of that iteration of Tim Drake, who was never Robin, where Bruce earlier on, when they were talking about that, he said, I know you kept yourself distant from us, but you've always been Robin to me. The last thing Tim says to Bruce is Robin out. And it, those two words hang so beautifully in the air. It's so smart. And it's such a cool, cool moment. If Tim were to, had to go out, that is how he goes out as a hero. He goes out to save people's lives. It's so good. But of course, we can't even have that one issue to contemplate him possibly being dead. No, because it has to play into the bigger overarching plot of the DC universe with Mr. Oz. 
something which really uh... comes of nothing because it was supposed to maybe be leading into Doomsday Clock, but Doomsday Clock was a giant fart in the wind that nobody cared about because it took two years for the damn thing to come out and it didn't even feature Mr. Oz because they had already revealed that he was Jor-El and that plot went over into the Superman titles. The original like floating theory that he was Ozymandias at least would have mattered, but it, it's just we don't talk about Mr. Oz. He's, he's going on the shelf with Hush. And this is also the first post-New 52 appearance of Ulysses Hadrian Armstrong, the general, Tim's archenemy. Not a fan, huh? No. I hate every plucky teen genius character that ever was. And again, the thing is, in the pre-New 52, he wasn't a plucky teen genius. He was military guy, very much like he was called the general because he was a student of military history. He was not like a tech boy. That was just to make him more Tim's opposite number here. He and Anarchy were Tim's two like major nemeses pre-New 52. How did you read any of that, Matt? Hey, Tim Drake is a great plucky teen genius. Don't let your uh, Wesley Crusher shit affect the beauty that is Tim Drake. I mean, I I can't stand the idea of reading another anarchy story. A- at least, as you say, Ulysses was not originally anarchy light. No, like they, I mean, they eventually team up, and there's they're stuff because again, they're Tim's nemeses. But an anarchy will show up in this tiny and run. But he's also a little bit older. He's not like thirteen. He's like seventeen or eighteen, and is more like social organizer. I mean, he's also, he's got a little bit of the genius thing going, but it's much more about him. You know, there, there isn't the crazy, as much crazy tech as I recall, but it's been a long time. Again, I really want to reread this whole run. You know, we've been talking about character arcs. We haven't talked about the colony or the League of Shadows, which again, really neat concept. The idea that the US government looks at Batman and thinks that this is an ideal, this is something to model our soldiers after. Only, you know, they're soldiers, so they're killing people. Lots of people. Yeah. As you might imagine, that kind of violates the one rule. Yeah, kind of a turnoff for Batman. Yeah. And the idea that they're there to counter a secret faction within Rachel Ghoul's organization that may or may not be a thing. Even though we get a hint towards the end of this that there is definitely something to it and that will be an arc later in this run about the league of shadows but it's it's such a cool idea and the whole thing and throughout where batman and tim and kate and everyone sort of prove that they as individuals working together work better than this homogenous army and here as i said before Tinian does not seem to have Rucka's affection for the military in the same way. He definitely treats Jacob Kane not as well as Rucka did. Yes. Because Jacob here is maybe a sympathetic villain, but he is a villain. The fact that he absolutely allows 
Ulysses to send these drones to wipe out 600 people plus collateral damage when only maybe 20 of them are actually who they're looking for. But those are, quote, acceptable losses. Even up till that point, if you could have given him a pass, that's when he crosses the Rubicon. He's he's not a good guy. And I like the design on the colony, the the sort of half Batman, half armored military thing is an effective look. Very reminiscent of what will be uh, Arkham Knight. Yes, there there is a definite similarity with the Arkham Knight. But I also like that Tinian, at least initially, is trying to make you question whether or not Jacob Kane is all that bad. Because the scene between Jacob and Kate, when Kate is a young girl at her mother's grave, when he's talking about what he's doing, he's saying words that are very similar to things that Bruce says about how he's doing this so no one else will have to suffer the way his family has. He's keeping the parallels between Jacob and Bruce there until Jacob crosses that line. And Jacob surrounds himself with people like Ulysses. Right. Jacob clearly feels some degree of remorse when he sets that drone army out. He says a prayer, but he still does it because for Jacob, the ends justify the means. Mm -hmm. Ulysses, on the other hand, is just a sociopathic little shit. So much of a little shit. Yeah. I do like that Batman has a way to contact the White House. Just, you know, to slip past the black line. The black line. You know who this is, motherfucker. (laughs) Exactly. This is a lot to set up what is going to happen in this run. But I think it tells a fuller story than Elegy. And I will say for three different artists, it's pretty close to seamless. They all have very similar styles and it looks very good, but we've talked about Eddie Barrows, both I think in the column and at least once or twice on the show here, it is very good superhero art, but it is very much superhero art. The colors here are particularly nice. There's some shading during those flashbacks to indicate their flashbacks. There's some ends of pages when Tim is thinking that have this sort of shine to them that have that sort of character looking off and thinking stuff over. So it uses its colors very well, too. But the art is not what you remember about this story. It's very good art, but it is not incredibly memorable art, with a few exceptions. I mean, the- yeah, it, it does have its moments. Uh, you t- you mentioned one of the flashbacks. There is a flashback imagined within uh, a pint glass, and so all of the panels are shaded, sepia slash beer toned. Uh, it's just some great layouts there. The final splash from the penultimate issue where Tim is there, his staff drawn as the drones surround him is a one of those big damn hero moments that works so well in a splash page. And even when he appears to die in, uh, you know, 
a hellfire literally of missiles. That's a good page. Absolutely. Again, it's good art, but also in all fairness, you compare anybody who isn't Darwin Cook to J.H. Yeah. Um, Williams. It's an uphill battle. And I think for every superb moment that this arc has visually, there is a corresponding, oh, this is too busy. This is this is too much, too much dialogue. It could have been edited a bit better, I think. This is Tinian's first big leagues book. He'd been part of the writer's room and done some of Eternal and Batman Robin Eternal. He had done backups and co-written with Snyder. He had written the Talon ongoing that we'll be talking about shortly. But that's a you know a secondary bat book. This is uh, the big... uh come on, tertiary. <laughs> yeah, true. This this is the big leagues. Detective Comics, short of Batman proper, it is the big show. Detective Comics relaunch, yeah. no less. I mean, this, oh, I probably should. This was bi-weekly. So this was not over seven months. This was over three months and three and a half months. It is, it's a bit long. It probably could have been trimmed a bit. But I, it's one of these where I'm not sure if there was a sequence that, I don't think you could pull an issue out of it. You'd have to cut a bit here and a bit there to compress it because the story itself tells its story well it just it does seem to be seven issues you gotta be having a lot for seven issues this could have probably been five or six with some judicious editing but i wouldn't have trimmed a lot this isn't three or four issues padded out to seven yeah and and certainly it's not fail safe where it just gets kind of like this repetitive just action 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 at least there is some variety to the action 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 and there is so much character work to support it i'm very much looking forward to continuing this run as well the stuff with Clayface, the stuff with spoiler and the resentment that she ha- feels towards bruce after tim's death all the stuff with kate the victim syndicate that we'll see, the League of Shadows, all of that. There's a lot in this arc. Oh, it's... I rem- I remember victim syndicate. Yeah, that's uh, a lot of stuff coming up. Yeah. The tragically forgotten Dr. October, great supporting character. So many good things. But I think I think we're we're pretty much ready on this. Oh, that means it's time for Detective Comics Rebirth Rise of the Batman on the big board. Here's my thinking. I think these stories are very tight. They're very good. They're very good for different reasons. And this is this is how I came to my rankings. I thought about not which one I would reread first but it's which story I want to continue the most. And for me, I would want to go next to the Elegy follow-up. So I'm going to say in my rankings tonight, Elegy 1, Rise of the Batman 2. Yeah, but I don't know how big a gap there is on the list between the two. It's not. It's very tight. They're both very good works. For instance, another Tim Drake story, 
Down at 49 is Identity Crisis, the story where he officially takes up the mantle of Robin. I would put this above that. I don't know if I would put it above A Lonely Place of Dying, his first appearance, up at 45. Though I might. And just just to point this out, we have A Lonely Place of Living at 101 now. So still a very good showing for that book. But that one has so much Mr. Oz and so much... I mean, you get a lot of good Tim in there and the, the multiple Tims is a neat, neat concept. But there's just so much weirdness with Mr. Oz that it drags that story down. And this is just such a good launch book, right? This is just laying out the mission, laying out what it's going to be and getting to it over the course of seven issues. But just examining, what is that? 934 as a number one. Oh, that's solid. We didn't even talk about the little appearances by Azrael, by Leslie Tompkins. Although, again, this is the new 52 Leslie Tompkins who suddenly Bruce's age. Body. Yeah, Body. exactly. But still, Tiny is working in all of these characters. All right, here's the ceiling. Absolute ceiling for me is 43. This does not beat the last Arkham at 43. First issue or first arc of Shadow of the Bat, again, does a really good job of establishing the mission of that book, that it's the darker, more psychological, somewhat villain-centric Bat title. And that also introduces Jeremiah Arkham and Zaz. All right, then I think it it needs to be basically right below that I, I i don't know how i feel in relation to golem of gotham but it is not much below 43 going back and forth on lonely place of dying but i think this is this is stronger than lonely place of dying because lonely place of dying is really good but it also has you know that one issue that's just Dick Grayson at the circus that doesn't really forward the plot of A Lonely Place of Dying much. Golem of Gotham is a really good, really deep story, but so is this. I mean, that that touches on bigger social issues, but when it comes to like personal issues about who someone is, the investigation of who Tim Drake and who Kate Kane are in this arc is so strong and so fundamental to those characters. I think this goes right in between the last Arkham and Golem of Gotham. All right. New 44. You know, it's funny. I'd been looking at the, when I was adding creator credits, I'd been like, boy, we haven't added anything to the top 50 with the exception of RIP in a long time. We've we had what that 90 so there was RIP from episode 100 and Black Mirror from 95. But other than that, we're 20 weeks out from you know, Motive, the second arc of Gotham Central. The top 50 was pretty heavily weighted on other stuff, but it's like, okay, hey, we, we just added two stories to the top 50. That's a good night. It was a hard night. But it's a good one. So that does do it for tonight. Next week, it's a pick from Patreon backer Matt McThorne, 
who wants to hear us talk about Calvin Rose, the heroic Talon, and the Court of Owls. We'd like to thank our Patreon backers, Dan Grote, Josh Wheel, Mrs. Abigail Hartbaum, Asimov Fangirl, Tony Thornley, Go Yates, Sam Hopper, John Wickham, Robert Secundus, Bobby Tubucks, Tim Rooney, Giorgio Sergioli, David Wheel, Alexander Wheel, and Matt McThorne for this. McThorny! You can follow this podcast on Twitter at Batchet Comics, and the show is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music slash Audible, and on ComicsXF.com, where new episodes drop every Thursday. You can support the podcast on Patreon at patreon.com slash batchat with Matt and Will, where you can get shout-outs, bonus content, pick a story, and even come on the show. If you want to hear more of my ramblings, mostly about the three C's, comics, cinema, and cats, you can follow me on Twitter at mattlast 1013 And I'm at Will Nevin. I'm also out of here. Good night, Huntsville! And be sure to visit ComicsXF at ComicsXF.com or at ComicsXF on Twitter for a weekly Friday Bat Chat roundup of new Bat books. For my other show, WMQ&A, my longtime best friend, Dan Grote, and I interview comics creators, retailers, publishers, journalists, and other related tradespeople, as well as all the other stuff Will and I are writing. And stay safe out there, folks. Gotham is not a place to be after dark. <laughs>